Hey there, GPSers, and welcome back to another edition of the GPS Podcast, where all of your podcast dreams will come true. In light of the weather this week, we are going to be changing the tagline to the GPS Podcast, the warmest podcast on the internet. Hopefully, one of those two taglines suits you where you are today. We are in the midst of some stormy, snowy weather, and so I hope you are safe and warm. And this week, we are going to be continuing on with our series that we've been moving through for the last few weeks and that we're going to be moving through until Easter Sunday, a series that we're calling A Gospel Life, a 90-day journey with Jesus. We are about at the halfway point of this journey. Easter will be here in a little over 40 days, and I hope that this daily reading of a gospel chapter each day has been good for you and been a benefit and a blessing and a good rhythm for you to develop and to have in your life. Over the last week, we've spent some time reading through some chapters in Mark, and I want to look at one of the more well-known passages in Mark chapter 8 today as we explore another dimension of who Jesus is and what it means to follow Jesus. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 until verses 38. Mark 8, 27 through 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way... He asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in the Father's glory with His holy angels. God, thank You so much for today. Thank You for giving us an opportunity to stay connected to Your Word. I pray today that as I share some reflections that You would give me the gift of preaching and teaching, and that you would bless us all with the gift of open hearts, that we would hear your voice and be transformed by it more 
and to the image of your Son, Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, I had a long drive to another state, and I had to get up early to make this drive. Now, if you haven't been up early for a long drive recently, then you probably don't realize that we've had some quite foggy mornings over the last few months. And this particular morning was just that. There was this heavy fog covering the road. It was not a great time for me to be driving. I don't like driving in the fog because I don't like that feeling of not being able to see clearly where I'm going when I'm driving. I don't like that feeling of only having the white line on the side of the road as a guide for my driving. Because in those foggy moments, I feel like my perception is off and I lose perspective of what's most important in driving well. And so, about halfway on the trip, I pulled off of the interstate to a small town for breakfast, not really paying much attention to what was going on around me. And then I jumped back in my car, got back on the interstate, and the most amazing thing had happened in that short time of breakfast. In my brief time off the interstate, the sun had come out and had burnt off that heavy fog. The morning was absolutely gorgeous. The sky was clear, bright blue, and I could see the road for miles in front of me. Those are the conditions that I prefer when I'm driving. I prefer visibility. I prefer being able to see the landscape around me. Because in those moments of clarity, I feel like I have good perception and I regain perspective about what is most important for driving. And as I was preparing some reflections for this passage this morning, I couldn't help but think of that recent driving trip and my experience with the fog. Because our text today is one of those moments for the disciples where they find themselves in a very foggy place, but they are given a moment of clarity to see what is most important. And I think that it's not just a moment of clarity for them, but it's also a moment of clarity for us as well. You see, up to this moment in the story of Mark's gospel, things have been pretty foggy for the disciples. We often forget this because we read the opening verse to the gospel of Mark, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and so we know where the story is headed. We have that unfair advantage of seeing clearly before the disciples ever really begin to try to follow Jesus. But from their perspective, things are not as clear. They don't know where the story's headed when they start following Jesus. And for eight chapters now, they've been following Jesus, who's been doing some pretty impressive things. Driving out unclean spirits, calming a storm 
at his word, teaching clever parables, confronting religious leaders. And for eight chapters, the question keeps getting raised. The question that holds the first half of Mark together is simply this question. Who is this man? The disciples don't yet have clarity about this question. In fact, the story that happens right before our text today is kind of a commentary on where the disciples are at and the perspective that they have. Right before, there's this strange healing story where Jesus touches this blind man twice so that he can see clearly. After he touches him the first time, things are still blurry. And after the first eight chapters encountering Jesus, things are still a bit blurry and foggy for the disciples. And Peter, a key representative of the disciples, who is kind of a case study in fogginess, if you want to think about it that way, because After some debate on the question, who is Jesus, Peter declares, you are the Messiah. Or as some translations put it, you are the Christ. Messiah, Christ, two words that mean the same thing. They mean anointed one. And who do we see getting anointed throughout scriptures? Kings, royal figures, Peter is declaring that Jesus is king. And while we may want to applaud Peter for getting it right, Jesus doesn't want anything said about this title he has just been given. Because Jesus knows that you can get the label right and still get him wrong. Jesus knows that you can call Jesus all of the right things and names and titles, but still be in a really foggy place and not see clearly what it means to be king, what it means for him to be king. You see, even though Peter gets the confession right, he's still in a very foggy place. And so our text this morning is this kind of moment of clarity for the disciples in two central ways. First, the moment's a moment of clarity about who Jesus really is, about a person. Immediately after this confession of Peter, Jesus begins burning away the fog of misunderstanding by teaching him and the other disciples the kind of king he's going to be. He begins speaking plainly to them about the path he's going to take. And just noticing the verbs he uses draws attention to the shock of his description. Suffer, rejected, killed, rise. Three out of four of these words are not very kingly. These are not the terms that the majority of the Jews would expect in a Messiah. Which is why Peter's strong response is a clear indicator of the way in which Jesus is challenging so many of those challenging preconceived notions of what they expect. In Peter's mind, in the mind of many of his Jews in the day, Messiah figures 
Christ figures, king figures, should be described by a different set of verbs. Verbs like rebuild the temple, conquer the enemy, administer justice, victory over captives and enemies. And the reason why Jesus responds so strongly, the reason why he rebukes him in the same way that he rebuked a demon in earlier chapters, is because for Jesus, this is a moment of clarity on a divine level. This moment of clarity is so important that he tells Peter, one of his own disciples, that he is standing in the way of God's purposes in the world. Jesus wants them to see clearly that this is who he is, the kind of person that he is. The second way this is a moment of clarity is not just about Jesus, but about who the disciples are to be, their posture. Immediately after rebuking Peter, Jesus begins burning away the fog of misunderstanding by teaching them the kind of disciples they are supposed to be. He speaks plainly about the path that they are to take. And there are two key traits to the description of disciple here. Self-denial and cross-bearing. And what's important to note is these two always go together. As one author points out, self-denial is a path of saying no to a certain kind of identity so that cross-bearing is the path of saying yes to a new kind of cross-shaped identity. Jesus is here saying that the path of following Him is fundamentally about a change that hinges on denying one identity and embracing a new one. And because of this identity change, Jesus says there will now be some new words, some new verbs of priority defining their existence. Words like losing, losing life and all the ways that we try to secure it. Words like forfeiting the world and all of the values the world holds. Words like exchanging previous ways of operating in the world and thinking about the world. Words like the words that all could be used to describe the life and ministry of Jesus. His identity becomes the disciples' identity. His description becomes the disciples' description. This is the moment of clarity for the disciples. This is the turning point moment for them. For those men and women standing there listening to Jesus, it was like the sky was clearing and they could not only see Jesus, but also themselves in a way they never had before. They began saying that the identity of Jesus is always connected to the identity of disciples. They began to see that the way of Jesus is always connected to the way of disciples. A moment of clarity is happening here on two fronts, a person and a posture. And that teaches us something about discipleship. It's fundamentally about a person and a posture. Christianity is fundamentally about a person and a posture. 
The Jesus movement is fundamentally about a person and a posture. And that clarifying moment is one not just for disciples then, but also for disciples now. And while this is refreshing, while this is clarifying, as moments of clarity often are, this is also a challenging moment. It's a moment of clarity, but it's also a moment that challenges as well. The moment's a challenge for those of us who strictly might want to focus on the content of Jesus. It's a challenge for those of us who want to make sure we completely understand Jesus and His historical context, that we make sure that we have hammered out the finer points of His teaching and the mystery behind His miracles. And while those things can be important, the challenge is that we can end up completely neglecting the actual call of discipleship that is always to be joined to the content of Jesus. In other words, we may end up with a lopsided Christianity that is all head knowledge and no life change. We may end up having facts, but never a true faith and trust. It's all person with no posture. This moment is a challenge for those of us who strictly want to focus on the characteristics of discipleship. It's a challenge for those of us who want to strictly emphasize the traits of denying ourselves, taking up crosses, and of losing our lives. And while those things are very important, the challenge is we end up with the kind of Christianity that's all about righteousness, but not relationship. Right deeds, but no relationship. That ends up wandering and tired and generic because it's not connected to the person of Jesus. It's all posture, but no person. It's easy to end up with one and not the other. And so what Jesus does here is quite profound and clarifying, but it's also challenging It's so challenging, in fact, that Jesus is going to have a similar encounter with his disciples two more times in the next two chapters. In chapter 9, he's going to remind them of the kind of king, the way of the cross he's going to walk, the kind of person he is, and then immediately following is one of the disciples arguing with each other about who's the greatest. Jesus is talking about the way of the cross in chapter 9, and All they're doing is talking about the path of greatness. So what does Jesus do there? He sits them down and talks about intentionally being last, about being servant to all, about being hospitable to the least. In other words, immediately following a description of his person, he begins explaining their posture. And then in chapter 10, for the third time, He tells them the kind of king he's going to be again, one who is arrested, condemned, mocked, spit upon, and killed. And in the very next scene, James and John come to him and ask if they can sit on the right and left of his throne in glory. Jesus is talking about death, and they're talking about glory. So what does he do? He gathers them up and says to them that the posture they are to take is one that reflects who He is. Not a life of serving yourself, but of serving others. In other words, 
immediately following a description of his person, he begins explaining their posture. In these three moments of clarity with his disciples, Jesus offers them a moment of challenge. It's a challenge to them, and it's a challenge to us as well. It's a kind of turning point moment. And the reason is because in the clarifying, challenging moment, we get at the heart of what it means to call oneself a follower, to call oneself a disciple, to call oneself a Christian. And it's a turning point moment for each and every one of us because we are reminded of what is at the heart of our faith. The fog clears and we're reminded of what is of first importance. Several years ago, a book was written called The Next Christians. It was written by a man by the name of Gabe Lyons. And in the book, he talks about the crisis of Christianity in the 21st century. And he says, one of the biggest challenges facing Christianity in our world is that we have confused second things with first things. And he references an article written by C.S. Lewis many years ago where he says this, You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. I think these words of Jesus are at the heart of first things for each and every one of us. Because He reminds us that what is of first importance for followers of Him is a person and a posture. And whenever we replace those things with any other things, whether it's a policy or a platform or a party or a parenting style, whether it's a way we do outreach or worship or our private devotional life or our passion, whether it's our church title or church association or church denomination, whether it's our right answers, righteous deeds, or right labels, whether it's a culture war or an interpretation on Scripture or a certain doctrine, when anything becomes more important than the person of Jesus, His death, burial, and resurrection, and our posture to Him, us following and participating in that death, burial, and resurrection, We have replaced second things with first things. And you can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. And the reason reason why this message, this passage, this idea is on my heart is because of some recent conversations with people that I love who have given up on church and faith because they experience too many people who seem to confuse second things with first things. Barna Research Group is a research group based out of California, and they recently released a study 
that talked about why millennials, typically ages 18 through 29, stay connected to church communities. And one of the top five reasons that young adults are staying connected is because they are at a place that, and I quote, facilitates a connection with Jesus. Now think about that for a second, because it sounds really basic, but we should not skip over it too quickly. Of ages 18 to 29-year-olds that they've interviewed and asked, why are you staying at the church where you're at? Those young adults said they're staying there because the church facilitates a connection with Jesus. They want to be at a place that keeps the person and a posture a priority. It seems so basic. To be at a church that facilitates a connection with Jesus seems to be obvious. But so many other things can become of greater importance at church And when those other things, those second things, become first things, then there is a ripple effect into every generation. And the reason why I give that particular stat and that particular reference to young adults is is not just to make a plea to appease a certain demographic, because that's not the point. In fact, anytime you place a top priority on just one demographic, then you're making a second thing a first thing. That should not be the top priority of a church. The point of me saying all of this is hopefully to call us to be the kinds of people who have at our core, who have as our top priority a person and a posture. And I really do think that there are people at our church who want that to be most important, first important in their heart. Recently, my wife and I were talking, and we were talking on a walk that we were taking, and we began to spend some time in light of the new year, kind of talking about priorities for the new year. And one of the ways that we were doing that was talking about simply where we spent our time as a couple. And with a new child, how and where and when we spend our time has changed drastically in the last couple of years. And so it felt like we were revisiting this conversation in a very, very new place and season of life. And as we were talking and walking, she said, I think. We need to be spending more time on Jesus. And I thought to myself, I knew I married the right girl. Again, something seemingly so simple, but yet so foundational. A word that I needed to hear, and maybe a word that you need to hear. I think we need to spend more time on Jesus. Maybe... That's what some of us need to say to one another, to our life group, to our spouse, to our kids, to our parents, to our Bible class, to our church. I think we need to spend more time on Jesus. 
I think we need to pay attention to the fact that Jesus talks about his core central identity, not just once, not just twice, but three times to the disciples in Mark's gospel because it's easy for us to forget. And he never wanted us to forget what should be of first importance. And when we do make that first importance, when we do make this person and posture our first importance, the person of Jesus and our posture change in light of Him, then what we will find is that the fog will begin to burn away and each and every one of us will experience a moment of clarity, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those around us who are looking to us to be light in this world. Amen.